0: Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and welcome to Tell Me. On today's episode of Tell Me, I am going to speak to Gabrielle Bluestone. She wrote a book called Hype about how scammers, grifters, and con artists are taking over the internet and why we're following them. She also executive produced the Fire Festival documentary on Netflix, which was, you know, a huge internet scam. And I really can't wait to hear Gabrielle tell me how people are able to get over so easily. I hope you all enjoy the
1: conversation. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt.
2: Congratulations on the book. Has it been fun? It's been incredible. Really cool just to be able to like talk about a lot of this stuff too. I'm an avid social media user and so kind of confronting my own relationship with it and and how like sucked into the hype we all are. I don't know.
0: It's been kind of wild. So it's really super fun reading it. Okay. So I have so many things to talk to you about. So first, let me start with I love a good con story. Mm -hmm. I did a movie once about this guy, Frank Abagnale. The movie was called Catch Me If You Can. Super small part, but so fun and like a really pivotal moment in my life because of who was in the movie and who directed it and all that. Anyway, I love a good con story. Right. And there's so many different types of con artists. Mm -hmm. So hype is really great because you get into all of the technicalities of of how McFarlane pulled off his con. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And what I find so interesting is there's all types of con artists, like I said, from guys who con women like Dirty John to Madoff type schemes. And there's so many different realms of con artists. But your book, Hype, makes a great point that like social media has given a whole new stage for the con artists. Now, I'm sure McFarlane is evident by your book in his you know, high school years. He was a con artist, right? Before the advent of social media, or I don't know, he's super young, so I don't know when social media started. But anyway, it's really interesting to see how social media has given a whole new platform to con artists. There's all these new scams to be perpetrated and to be had, and it's just, it's a lot of fun. What do you have to say about all of that?
2: Well, first of all, I'm so glad you brought up Catch Me If You Can, because that is one of my favorite con artist stories of all time. I mean, I read Frank Abagnale Jr.'s book when I was a kid, which probably explains how I ended up in part doing what I'm doing now. But, you know, there's like a famous quote from the movie about the two mice that fell in a bucket of cream and the first mouse, you know, drowns and the second struggles so hard that he turns it into butter and climbs out. And I think that's like a perfect encapsulation of why con artists are so effective. You know, they do not give up. They have this confidence and this charisma and con artists are really the only people I think in society that are uncancelable and like always fail upwards in part because, you know, there is an artistry to what they do. You know, it requires the same skills that we look for in leaders and, you know, CEOs and presidents But as you pointed out, you know, this advent of social media has made it so much easier for con artists to do what they do. I mean, they can literally scam us at home without even having to put pants on now. Like it's really made it so much easier for them to access victims, to kind of create the signifiers that you would look for without ever having to do them in real life, right? You can hire an influencer to sell your product and nobody bothers to look if the product is real or not. And then the other element of it is the way that social media has really trained us as consumers and as potential victims to consume online media. Think about when you are most likely to go on Instagram or Twitter, it's when you're feeling bored or lonely or looking for something to stimulate you. And that really kind of primes us to be scammed because what really makes these online cons so effective is that we are really doing a lot of the work for them.
0: Right. By following. So I love the mice analogy in Immediately, it makes me think of um, the Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers, how he talks about, you know, there could be two people with the same exact IQ, and one is just going to be innately more resilient than the other person. You know, they're both super smart. They both have super high IQs. But someone is going to say, I can't get up that hill because it's too high. And the other one is going to figure out, how do I get up that hill? And I'm going to find a way, come hell or high water, to get up the hill. Which makes me think of, when you think about con artists and the different types of con artists, it's like who's a sort of born con artist and who's sort of had to adapt and become a con artist, right? Like if you think about, let's say, uh, Vinnie the Chin Giganti, right, who was a famous mafioso. And you grew up in New York City. I'm sure you've heard these stories. Um, Vinny the Chin used to walk around the Greenwich Village in a bathrobe and slippers and try to convince the feds that he was crazy, right? So he wouldn't have to face charges. And that's one of the most hilarious cons of all time. And he got away with it for a really long time, which is a brilliant story. And then he had, you know, like a real apartment on the Upper East Side. And the feds were watching him the whole time and knew that he was going back to the Upper East Side and, you know, going to have dinner and, you know, hang out at night and then just going to roam around the village in the daytime. So, some people become caught of, out of necessity and some people are just
2: wired that way, right? Mm-hmm. It's wild. What's fascinating about social media, I think, is we're constructing alternate realities for public consumption. And I think a lot of people, especially like in the influencer world, you kind of lose that line between what's online and what's offline. There's often a gulf between them. You know, how deep that gulf is and how far apart those two realities are often kind of define whether someone is a scammer or not.
0: Right, well, because as human beings, like innately, we want to believe, right? We want to believe Mm -hmm. that something is too good to be true, whether it's Madoff or whether it's the guy from Dirty John. It's like, Mm -hmm. he's handsome, he's sexy, he tells me all the things I want to hear. We want to believe that it isn't too good to be true. But that saying, ladies, if you're listening, too good to be true is a real thing. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And, you know, listen, if we're not losing our money and not buying fake concert tickets, you know, obviously that's a different level of like putting yourself in financial harm and debt and all of that to just follow people, which is kind of absurd. And there's a great line in your book, I think the professor from Stanford, I'm going to forget his name now, that talks about losing our own identity because we're such followers. But with influencers, we're buying into a lifestyle. We somehow want that room to be so beautiful, or we want that girl to be so beautiful. We want that aspirational life. We want to live vicariously through her Instagram because it feels good in the moment in the same way that gambling does, which you also Mm -hmm. touch on in the book. It's that same adrenaline rush of like, ooh, this feels good. Ooh, she's so pretty. Ooh, look at her coffee table. But then after it's like, ew, I don't have that (laughs) coffee table. And I don't look like that without an Instagram filter. So in the same way that gambling is like a rush and then a fall, our biology is the same. We get that adrenaline hit. We love it. We love it. We love it. We push the button. We push the button. And then after we feel bad about it, which is like, you know, again, you're too young, but Oprah Winfrey did a show once that was like famous for, she had a psychologist on talking about our dopamine and our brain when we shop right? And we Mm -hmm. get that shopper's high, and then we get the shopper's fall. And it's really our biology plays into all of this stuff. Con artists and no con artists, at the end of the day, we're still responsible for our own behavior. And we do have the power of our mind and our thought to say no,
1: ultimately. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. I mean, it's funny you say that
2: because, you know, I've joked about this before. You know, I've been shopping for that one thing for my entire life that's somehow going to change my life forever. And I haven't found it yet, but I'm sure it's out there. And I think as human beings, we're all kind of like searching for something. And that's where con artists really thrive because they are able to step in and say, here, I have this solution to what you've been looking for. So one of the reasons that, you know, the fire Festival, I think, hit so hard and was so effective, especially among millennials, was that all these people had been following these beautiful models and these famous influencers for so long and knowing so much about their lives. And then here is this guy that is offering you entree into this lifestyle, a chance to be one of them, you know, not just to like go to the same island that they're at, but he made it seem like you were going to be on the beach with these models, taking selfies with them. And for the low price of, you know, $2,500, You could be a Kendall Jenner. You could be Hailey Bieber. And so people really responded very emotionally to that. The thing that always struck me about the festival was, you know, first of all, I didn't even get interested in it, for example, until I saw a high school classmate of mine was going. He was posting about it on his Instagram. And then I had an emotional reaction where I was like, am I missing the party of the year? What is this? And so I started to look into it. And I'm, you know, I'm a researcher, I'm a Googler. So I really started to look at it And I ended up on their website and their website looked so different from what they were marketing on Instagram that then I was like, oh, there's something really interesting going on here. But if I had never left Instagram, it's very likely that I would have purchased the same ticket too. You get swept up in this emotional reaction. And what's wild about social media is like these algorithms are built to elicit those reactions. As you said, it's like gambling, but it's also literally like gambling. Like they are built like slot machines, you know, so that you get a couple of boring posts and then you get one that really piques your interest. And the more that we like click or like or spend time looking at one post, you know, the more these algorithms know exactly what we're looking for and how to hook us in. Because the whole point of these platforms is to keep our eyeballs on them for as long as possible so that they can serve us ads, which is how they make money. We are the product, especially when you're, when you're scrolling through social media, I think it's very confusing now because real people are trying to post as if they're brands and then brands are trying to post like they're real people. (laughs) And then you have, you know, these influencers acting as like a human go-between kind of like laundering their message. And I don't know, it's overwhelming. And yet I'm on Instagram all the time. You know, I, I intellectually know these things and then I still have such an emotional reaction to it. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's entertainment at our fingertips whenever we want it. Someone said something that made so much sense to me about how our belief systems are so controlled because our feed is one thing. And I noticed with myself, I always change who I follow. I always like unfollow people and refollow new people and always try to switch it up so that I do see different things and that I do get different points of view. Because I think that's a pretty valid thing that when you're constantly just following the same people, you're only being fed the same information. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you agree with that information or not, you can always unfollow. But I do think it's a fun, interesting idea to change up who you follow, so that you can get exposure to different things. You know, we've probably seen during coronavirus and during the Black Lives Matter protests, I'm sure a lot more white people are following Black people's feeds now. Thank God they are. And hopefully they're following not just to be politically correct, but following Mm -hmm. to truly listen to ideas and, and rethink ideas that they may have had about things or whatever. So I think a variety in our Instagram feeds is always a good idea. So then the next thing that I wanted to say is you were talking about like wanting to always look for that perfect thing to buy, right? And -hmm. you talk in the book about influencers coming up with brands like you're talking about and they make a dress. And so everybody buys the dress and then everybody loves the dress. But then all of a sudden, oh, she's copied the dress from someone else. And indeed, if that is true and she has copied the dress from someone else, shame on her, but we're the ones buying the dress and we're the ones following that person. So, you know, it's like, Do you blame the con artist or do you blame us for being conned, you know? Yeah. We have to bear some responsibility. But then, you know, it's like in order to not bear responsibility, boom, knock on the door. Cancel culture. Here we come. You Mm. scammed us. You did this. It wasn't us who fell for it. We're innocent. We're victims. We're just, you know, nice people trying to have fun and trying to wear dresses. (laughs) And shame on you for copying someone's dress. So it's a wild world out there of players.
2: Yeah. Well, what's really interesting, you mentioned kind of people feeling the victim all of a sudden. What I found really fascinating in, in researching these kinds of scams is that people don't typically feel empathy or sympathy for victims of scams. It's kind of like a quirk of human nature. You know, as human beings, we tend to overestimate our own intelligence. Uh, We tend to look at people that fall for scams as if, you know, well, they were gullible or I wouldn't have fallen for that. And so it's, it's really difficult, I think, unless you are directly affected to kind of feel bad, which is a little separate from what you were saying. But you know, in that chapter of the book with the designer, what I found really shocking was just confronting my own kind of lack of understanding or lack of knowledge. You know, I had an idea of who this woman was based on her social media. And I just assumed that to be true. And it wasn't until, you know, I was invited over to her home and dealt with her offline that I really started to like look into who this person actually was and compare the experience in real life to you know, the social media experience. And so it got me thinking a lot about, you know, this like theory of hyper-reality and Jean Baudrillard and the idea that, you know, we can't even really differentiate between what's real and what's like a simulation. And I think you see that a lot, especially with, you know, celebrities who live their lives online. I thought a lot about, you know, the Kardashian family has been accused of creating these unrealistic beauty ideals and kind of portraying an image that may not match who they are offline. And the idea is like, they can't even live up to this standard or this idea that they've created. Like it is so unrealistic and yet... As consumers of this media, we believe that that's who they are, even when we're presented with evidence to the contrary. It's kind of a fascinating development. Yeah, because
0: whose fault is that? That's not their fault. That's our fault. You know, we know that Instagram filters exist. We can tell when a photo just looks so flawless and perfect and gorgeous. So is it their fault for doing it or is it our fault for following? I mean, they should be able to do whatever they want. It's... It's, you know, if, if you get duped by it, then, you know, I mean, you have a right to be mad, but not necessarily mad at them. I mean, you know, listen, there are levels to this shit, right? I mean, Madoff, you could be mad at that dude, right? Mm-hmm. Because he genuinely bankrupt people and hurt people. But I think with like the influencer set, it's follower culture, really. It's so interesting how you literally break down Instagram. It's like followers following We all want Mm -hmm. followers and that's what we are. We're following. You know, sometimes when people don't follow anyone on Instagram, one way to look at it is coming off as arrogant. But another way to look at it, the positive way to look at it is like they don't follow anybody. They create culture by themselves, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, what that Stanford professor in the book speaks about also is like we've sort of lost the ability with social media It's the same way that I think you've heard the comparisons now, people making the comparisons to New York City in the 70s or the 80s. It's like... When rents are so high, how can the artist, how can the up-and-coming artist even afford to live in New York City? Where are the Andy Warhols? Where are the Basquiats? How are you allowed to even create that artist culture anymore if you can't afford the rents in New York City? If it's all just Wall Street bankers and hedge fund people, where's the creativity? There's a lack of balance there. But I really do agree with that Stanford professor that It really creates an environment where you don't need to come up with your own, what do I think the cool shoe is? What do I think a cool outfit is? you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to keep talking to my fans. I have so many young women who are fans. They are influenced by things I say. Whether I like Mm -hmm. it or not, they are influenced by things I say. They are sometimes offended by things I say. So one of the reasons for me to do this podcast was to sort of put ideas out there ideas for them to reflect on, ideas for them to think about, to help them in some way. Because I can either use this platform that I have, I have to choose how to use it, right? And what to do with it. If it's currency in today's world, as we know it is, Mm
1: -hmm. how do I want to
0: spend my money? Circles right back to the dress. Do we want to buy that dress knowing that she's ripped off that other small business? So it's just an idea that it's important to put out there is at any moment, all of us have the opportunity to create our own art, to decide we're not going to wear the sneaker that whoever wears. There's a very specific set of people who I think are super super ultimately cool and we should be following that's the other thing about influencers <laughs> that's really like so interesting to me it's like Rihanna we should all be following everything she does right I think, mm-hmm. I think that's safe to say like whatever rewears we like do it whatever she says follow it right but yeah you know we're talking about like a body of work and we're talking about a full complete persona. I'm using her as an example because she's a good example because she's a, a super hard worker, has created a body of work, and is an inherently cool and original mm-hmm. in her style of music, of dress, of opinions. So she's a good example. Obviously, I'm a fan. You and me both. But these other influencers, it's incredible to me that like we're just sort of really taking ordinary people mm-hmm. and deciding that they're cool. And it's like, "Mm, okay, well, they're really not that cool. They're not that interesting. Okay, so they have a super pointy nose and they're super skinny. That doesn't really make you cool. So it's really interesting that people's choices of what they think is cool really makes them uncool.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's really interesting because I think it is human nature and always has been long before the advent of the internet to look to certain people as influencers. You know, in in the book, I spoke to a professor who kind of dated it back to the Habsburg Empire and posited, you know, the royals as like the prototype of influencer. For some reason, we as human beings just like love to look to other people to tell us how to live their lives. Arguably, Martha Stewart is the original influencer of our time. Influence by itself isn't a positive or a negative thing. It just is. And I think, as you were saying, how you use it and what you do with it and how you think about it and consider it makes a big difference, right? If you have influence and you're just selling it to the highest bidder, arguably, that's a pretty... Negative use of it. If you are thinking about how you can positively impact people or get them thinking about certain things, that seems like a much more positive use. But yeah, we love to kind of follow and see what other people are doing and compare and contrast. There is a movie that not a lot of people have seen, but I am like obsessed with because it predated influencers, which was Keeping Up with the Joneses in which a marketing company hired a very attractive-looking family, dropped them into a suburban town, and then plied them with brands that their neighbors would see them driving an Audi and want to get an Audi, too. We love to see kind of how other people are doing it and then do it ourselves. But there's obviously a really dark side to that, too, where we will follow someone to an island in the Bahamas, you know. (laughs)
0: Which I always go to the Bahamas in the summer. I love it so much. So I am really super familiar with all the islands. I mean, the idea that you could pull something off like that there, clearly not a lot of people have spent a lot of time in the Bahamas. I mean, you know how hard it is to get (laughs) anything there. I mean, everything's on an island. It's like impossible Mm -hmm. to get things on an island.
2: There were really smart people involved in that who should have known that. And it's funny you mentioned kind of the business class in New York and Silicon Valley as well, who are kind of devoid of culture and looking to other people for it. You know, I I spoke to someone whose friend invested $5 million in the Fire Festival, and he warned his friend not to do it. He was like, this doesn't look right, save your money, you know, invest it in oil and gas or something (laughs) that will get you a return. But this guy wanted so badly to be part of the zeitgeist and to align himself with, you know, the influencers that were doing it, that he really did it kind of sight unseen. And I don't think this is necessarily limited to social media either. If you look at Theranos, which is one of my favorite scams in recent years, these were all professionally wealthy people who invested billions of dollars into a company based on this blood test that never existed. Not one of these people ever saw it pulled off. You know, like they should have known. How did they not know? And I think part of it is, you know, Elizabeth Holmes hired these influencers, essentially. She had Henry Kissinger on the board. She had David Boyes involved. The Walton family were investors. And once you see these kind of like marquee names, I think everyone else just clamored in. They didn't bother doing due diligence because, you know, why would you when all these celebrities are involved? So it's a really great illustration of how much we are tripping over ourselves to kind of believe that, you know, we all know if something seems too good to be true, it probably is, as you said, but we all believe we're the exception to the rule. And then we do the mental gymnastics to get ourselves there.
0: Right. Elizabeth Holmes is it's an incredible story. It's so true. So I have two questions for you. I want your opinion on this.
2: Mm-hmm. Number one, did Elizabeth
0: Holmes just really believe that she could do it or did she know that she was full of shit from the beginning? And then my second question is, Do you think there's a difference in the way that men con as opposed to women con? Or do you think that a con artist is a con artist? Or do you think that there's different machinations of like how women operate when they're conning as to how men operate when they're pulling a con?
2: That's an excellent question. I'll start with that just because I think like the mechanics of how people con is like they're able to, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so I think necessarily because you know, for better or worse, men and women operate so differently in business and in kind of like social media and that kind of thing. Um, necessarily, it's a different kind of calm because they're both coming in and blending in with everyone else. And then snap goes the trap. But whether they knew that they couldn't, you know, that's like the question for the ages, right? And even with Billy McFarlane, people that knew him still questioned if he was deliberately scamming everyone or just got in totally over his head. And I think that there is like an element of narcissism there and grandiosity where maybe you really truly do believe in yourself. I think that they would have had to have some kind of belief that they could do it or they wouldn't have been able to sell it so well to people, right? There's like an element where like, you give me money and I'll I'll make it happen. But, you know, it, it's funny because it's an indictment of like the larger VC and kind of tech world startup culture which is that when most of these founders start raising money, they don't have a product. So they're really selling themselves and their confidence and that's what they're getting money for. And so I kind of mentioned this before, but the same personality elements that make a con artist successful are what VCs are looking for in CEOs. You know, they're looking for someone who's grandiose and over the top. And so you see that a lot where it's all based on nothing and everyone's kind of just like has their fingers crossed praying for the best. Well, really, it's based on a personality disorder, right? I mean, Mm -hmm.
0: narcissism and grandiosity are like, you know, evidence of personality disorders. And so you're a lawyer, but what type of law did you study? Criminal law. Oh, amazing. Okay, so perfect question.
2: Is a personality disorder a defense for a crime? Generally, no. And actually, it's very funny. In the Billy McFarland sentencing, he had hired a couple of psychiatrists and psychologists to examine him. And so we have the benefit of kind of reading their analysis on him. And they said that he was dealing with bipolar and different issues. But when it came time for sentencing, the judge specifically mentioned that she disagreed with one of the psychologists' contention that he did not show signs of psychopathy, that he wasn't a sociopath. And she disagreed with that in open court and said something like, you know, his fraud, like a circle, has no end. But it was very funny because then she ultimately sentenced him to just six years when he was facing, I think, up to 75. So the sentence and her contention did not necessarily match. But yeah, there's definitely some kind of disorder there that would lead someone to behave like that.
0: Right. That's so interesting. So let's talk for a minute about you going to law school and your career choice. So you went to college and had one idea in mind about what you wanted to do. And then did your opinions or ideas or wants or needs shift and how did that happen and what influenced you to make a career pivot?
2: Well, I was a journalism major undergrad. I always knew that I loved writing and journalism kind of almost seemed like a cheat, right? Like to me, the hardest part of writing is figuring out what you're going to write about. And that's what journalism comes baked in with. Then you just have to figure out how to tell that story to other people. And I find that to be the really fun, creative, artsy part, but I didn't really believe that that could be a career. You know, I didn't know anyone who was working successfully as a journalist, I was worried about how I was going to support myself. And so I went to law school. I was always interested in the law and I didn't really know what else to do. I graduated in 2011, which was a very scary time to be coming into the job market. You know, there weren't a lot of jobs. The economy was a mess. I don't know that going to law school is the smartest decision, but it seemed like a A good choice at the time. And while I was in my second year, I just happened to apply to this website Gawker, which I had read religiously. I loved that combination of like the snarky ironic detachment, but also the feeling that like, okay, these people are seeing through the hype. Like these people are seeing things for what it really is. And I happened to get a callback. And I have to recommend to anyone who's listening, like always shoot your shot. You really never know what's going to happen. And I sent it in as a lark and they wrote back to me, basically saying that I was not at all qualified for the position that I had applied for but they had this other part-time job writing on the weekends that was opening up and did I want to give it a try which I did and by the time I graduated I had basically a full-time job with them waiting for me I had looked at being a prosecutor I interned at the Brooklyn DA's office in the major narcotics bureau which was like the coolest, craziest experience of my entire life. It was literally like being in the wire. The one time when I've really seen reality match TV like that. But I was always more interested kind of in diversion courts. And I don't necessarily believe prison is the right solution for everyone, which is somewhat at odds with working in a prosecutor's office. Uh, and so I ended up in journalism instead. And it's been great to focus on fraud and crimes and Instagram versus reality, you know, looking at things for what they are versus what the marketing is. I think it utilizes a lot of the same skills. Um, The writing is a little more fun, for sure. Less footnotes. (laughs) But yeah, so I I somehow ended up here. And I
0: guess law school in the possible internship at the Brooklyn DA's office showed you what you didn't want to do, right? So, I mean, I tell my kids, you know, it's okay that you tried something and you don't like it because you don't know what you do like unless you know what you don't like.
1: So Mm -hmm.
0: it's often a path to figuring out what you do like. And, you know, listen, any kind of work in Brooklyn is always worth giving a serious thought to, in my opinion.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because at least with writing, you know, with law, it's more of an advocacy kind of work, Mm -hmm. whether it's for the state or for your client. And I feel like with journalism, you kind of get more of a chance to present things as you truly believe they are and rather than as an argument for how it should be or how your client wants it to be.
0: Right. Also, injustice has got to be an extremely infuriating thing to witness and experience on a daily basis. I mean, that's just got to chip away at your spirit, you know, seeing injustice and things like that. So, you know, the book, like I said, is really so fun and kind of reads a bit gossipy, you know, and I was in the Hamptons in the summer reading on the beach in the Hamptons, and it was fun to like read about the Hamptons and the people in the Hamptons while I'm sitting there on the beach, like watching everybody. And uh, how do you go about researching? And you just talk to people, you call up and say, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. And do people hang up on you? (laughs) Do people run from you at parties? Like, what happens? Like, what's it been like since you wrote this book? Because one, like, quote on the back of the book, I forget who said it, and they talk about, you tell a nice line. Like, you don't really dissing anybody. You know, you're just very factual, not really throwing opinions out there. You're just throwing facts out there. And you don't seem judgmental at all in the way you present your book. So good for you, because I think that's a hard sort of balance to achieve. Thank you. But anyway, so how has it been, like, since you wrote the book and, like, how is that process for you?
2: It's been really fun. I'm so happy you said that, by the way, because like my favorite thing I learned in law school was the theory that res ipsa loquitur, the thing speaks for itself. And I, I think that that's a really powerful tool in journalism where you don't really have to make the snarky joke when it's so obvious just by presenting a set of facts What's going on. I find that's often more powerful. And I definitely, I try to make some jokes in the book. I'm not totally innocent. It's done in a nice way. You also touch on the end
0: of the book when you talk about the coronavirus, and we talk about celebrities and their missteps that they had during the coronavirus, which is a great chapter also, really poignant and meaningful, but also, as the tone of the whole book, fun at the same time, which is, you know, a delicate balance. Kudos. Thank you. You know, if you genuinely try to do meaningful things with your life, if you genuinely try to engage with
2: people or in a job, then your interesting Instagram feed can follow. Mm-hmm. If you know that you have this number of eyeballs on you and you make sure to amplify causes that are important to you or you know things that you think are unjust, like you can do something good with that. Obviously, if you go into it with the mindset that I'm just gonna monetize these eyeballs and sell them whatever I can, that's like a really negative way of handling it. But I thought this was interesting too. And I think you saw it especially during COVID and during the Black Lives Matter protest, as you mentioned, that people really did feel kind of a responsibility. Obviously, there was an element of virtue signaling there. But I think a lot of people did feel a responsibility to do something with their audiences and to influence them in a positive way in some way. And then, of course, you have, you know, brands that are, you know, blasting these social justice messages while, you know, their staff and their executive boards look nothing like what they're posting online, which is its own issue and its own kind of scam. But it's really interesting because whether you've done something to earn this audience or not, I think celebrities that are posting on Twitter, the people that are following them there follow them because they like the creative work that they've done. But generally, I feel like the messages they're broadcasting on Twitter aren't promos for shows or that kind of thing. It's like them posting causes that are important to them or trying to broadcast certain messages. So it is kind of interesting to see what people do with their audiences. And then just as its own weird quirk of how humans work, we tend to assign a lot of value to people who have followers, even if we know some of them are fake, you know, just seeing that large following number, you know, there are studies that show that people perceive that person as smarter, as more attractive. So there are all these like weird kind of side elements that come with it too. Yeah. It's a good point
0: that you make, which makes me think of is the pressure of, oh my goodness, I have this following, which is like instant fame really is what it is. Mm -hmm. Whether followers are anonymous or not, it's still a level of instant fame. And fame, as we know, historically, is a massive thing on your psyche, right? Some people are equipped emotionally, psychologically to handle it. And some people are not. Mm -hmm. Some people do navigate it like champs and are really okay with it and are able to be graceful and use it in a great way. and, And just some people just aren't built to be able to navigate it or handle it. It's something that you don't really know, I guess, until you're in it. Right? Mm-hmm. And it happens very quickly on social media, where I, I feel like, with at least entertainers, there's a slower build. It's a longer time before they figure out if they can handle it or not, or if they like it or not. With social media, it happens really fast. Like, I really feel for these young influencers, these super young women who have huge followings, and then people start recognizing them out in the street and they're getting followed by paparazzi. And it's like, it's really a lot to have to deal with all at once when you've kind of, it just happens so fast. I know for me, I was really old when I started acting. I really didn't start acting until I was like 26, 27 years old. And so it wasn't getting recognized until I was in my 30s. I started Grey's when I was 33. So I always feel like I was able to live a really just sort of normal life struggling as an actor. Before I had to kind of deal with getting recognized and then there were just levels to it where I got to ease into it gently. Social media in all its forms is a lot for all of us to process and think about And um, I really appreciate you writing this book because you did it with compassion and fun. And I think there's a lot of great lessons in here to be learned. and, And hopefully this podcast episode today, people will take something away meaningful from it and have a little fun at the same time, just like hype.
2: Thank you. But I do want to say like that definitely reminds me of your very excellent Hollywood Reporter essay, which is that, you know, you can have all this attention, but still not have the power or the money. And I think we forget that when we see people with these huge followings, the the attention does not necessarily mean that you have the security or you're getting paid what you should. And maybe to close on like an excellent Bill Murray quote, which is like, someone asked him, you know, they were talking about fame and wealth. And he was saying like, if you think you want to be rich and famous, try just being rich first and then see if that doesn't kind of get you everything you're looking for. Which reminds me of an Alan Alda quote. I'll never
0: forget this. I was in the Hamptons at LT Burger and over Mm -hmm. the bar, the TV was on and it was this old interview from Alan Alda. You know, I love Alan Alda. And he said, the last thing you want to be is famous with no money because you can't get away. You can't get away. Money at least gives you the ability to sort of hide a little bit if you need to, to get some space.
2: Yeah. Gabrielle, this was so fun. It was so nice to talk to you. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much for reading my book and for inviting me on. I am honestly so honored and it was such a pleasure. I look forward to the next one. Wait, hold on. Do you know what the next one is? (laughs) Not yet, but you know, there are scams happening every day and I will be. (laughs) The fodder is there. I just have to get it all together. (laughs) Well, good luck with that. And I can't wait to hear what's going on. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.